0: take your bibles turn to john chapter 11 and true confession from the preacher this is probably the most difficult passage in the entire book to preach um, for a number of reasons one uh, you all know this really well Um, those are always the hardest sermons because you know them Uh, two is uh, john and his wonderful writing style has made this virtually indivisible. It is one chunk almost the whole way through. So you'll, if you've looked ahead, you've noticed I'm preaching 44 verses today. Um, thus, again, difficult to preach. I would, however, encourage you that any we come to a text that you know well, one of your favorites, you've heard it preached at funerals and all other times. It's most likely been preached at Easter about a billion times for you. Uh, to try to put away all of your kind of preconceived notions and to come to the text anew. It's one of the habits that are good to learn is to kind of, again, how would a 10-year-old read the text? And then as you do that again, add in all of the other material that you've learned and then grow. So let us together. I will read it. I would ask that you follow along as it is quite lengthy. Now, a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word and we humbly ask for your help. We see here in this passage that if we believe this great promise, that we would see the glory of God. And we ask now, first, that you would help us in our unbelief. And second, that we would see Jesus. Show us Jesus in the text we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Reenact the scene for you very quickly. The scene is simple. It's a, a family, mom and dad, young kids of some ilk, sitting around the table at dinner at night. I know that probably doesn't happen enough these days. And they're attempting to eat, and the meat has been consumed, and the macaroni and cheese has been consumed, and the peaches have been consumed, but one thing remains on the plate. The veggies, that's right. Yes, you figured it out, haven't you? The child sits there, or the children, maybe they're teaming up tonight. I don't want to eat it. You got to eat your veggies. I don't want to eat it. I don't care. You got to eat your veggies. And through this conversation, you know there's going to be one tipping point, one phrase somehow just manages to come out every time this conversation is had. You have to eat your veggies because they're good for you. That's a true statement. I mean, it is. If you only consume, you know, french fries as your veggies for the span of your lifetime, it would not be a very lengthy span of lifetime. You need the veggies. They're good for you. But it's interesting how this conversation plays out between children and parents where the children are looking at the values of now and the parents are looking at the values of later. The children are looking at saying, I'm six and I think this is nasty. Therefore, I don't want to eat it. And mom and dad are looking and saying, you're six, you need all of the nutrients that we can give you. And as much as you would like to believe it, ice cream does not provide them all. You need veggies. The Lord will use them to make your body strong and mighty, to make you healthy and whole. You have to eat your veggies, not because you will enjoy them now, but because you will enjoy them later. The children valuing the now, the parents valuing the later. The children paying particular attention to the unpleasantness of the now and the parents paying particular attention to the blessings of the later. In John 11, we have a similar kind of story taking place. It's an extended conversation, not about eating vegetables so much as it is about death. And it's a conversation that Jesus has by and large with two women where they say to the effect, I don't want to eat my veggies. I don't want to have to mess with death. I don't want to have to mess with the hurt and the heartache and the brokenness and the loneliness and all of the pain that comes with death. And Jesus responds beautifully, you have to eat your veggies Because they're good for you. You have to face death because it's good for you. Now, not because death naturally is a good thing, but because in just a few chapters, Jesus is going to change it. Because death is going to be transformed so that it is new for the saints so that it is different, so that it functions like veggies to make us strong and mighty. And John here has been telling the story of Jesus, and John takes a different approach than many of the other gospel writers. They tend to focus more on action. Marcus almost all action, barely any teaching. And they tend to focus on the extent of his ministry prior to that last Passover week. John spends the bulk of it At the actual death week Already in John chapter 11 We're in the final stories In fact, if you just turn the page over The triumphal entry is next week Well, next chapter, I mean He's at the end of the story Of Jesus' regular ministry And he's now built us to John chapter 11 To the last great sign That Jesus performs John's put a series of them in, 7 to be specific, but this is the last great one where he displays for the Jews and for the Gentiles and for his apostles and for all of his people to see he is exactly who he says he is. It's that moment when you go to the grocery store or whatever and you're, you're spending a lot of money on your debit card or your credit card and they're supposed to ask for your identification. You're like, oh. You have to pull out your your driver's license and show them, yes, I I am who I say I am. Jesus is going to do that now, not with a driver's license or a state-given identification card. He's going to use death. That, my friends, is going to show you how powerful of a person we are talking about. That to me, to prove my identity, I'm stuck using a piece of plastic that I paid the government to print for me. And Jesus is going to use the death and resurrection of a man to showcase exactly who he is. Slightly different sermon structure, slightly different passage. Five points today, only an hour sermon. I'm just kidding. <laughs> But all of these uh, to show, John has built this story in this place and in this part of the book to, to kind of be the climactic point to show Jesus' ministry is all about displaying who He is and who God is, for they are the same. He is God. So we're going to see five ways the Lord displays or five things Christ displays about the person and work of God. The first thing we're going to see is Christ is the wisdom of God. When you were to look at Jesus Christ, you were to see wisdom incarnate, specifically wisdom from on high. John picks up the story telling us of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and he gives us some identifiers, and I love John. He's a bit disorganized. He's a little bit scattered, and that might appeal to some of us. He drops a note on us. Oh, this is Mary, by the way, who anointed the Lord with her hair. That doesn't happen until the next chapter, but he's still cluing us in, though we haven't read that yet. Saying, look, okay, these are people that know Jesus, and they love Jesus, and oh, by the way, Jesus... Loves them, and not just a little. Jesus loves them a lot, and they love him a lot. Again, you're gonna find out in the next chapter. They're in the middle of a dinner party. She washes Jesus' hair and with you know, or washes Jesus' feet with her hair in very, very affectionate, loving toward her Savior. And while Jesus is out of Jerusalem, he's fled far away, knowing that they're ready to kill him. He receives the message from the siblings. Lord, the one that you love is ill. Lazarus is sick and not like, oh no, he has a head cold kind of sick. Not, oh no, he's got an ingrown toenail. I I wish you would fix that for him. No, this is the message of, no, this this, this might be it. And Jesus, in unbelievable wisdom gives this response this illness does not lead to death it's for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it and this is going to frame the whole conversation this frames the whole story as Jesus identifies the nature of what's going to take place and the purpose of what's going to take place the nature is oh he's not sick with something that's going to kill him well I mean it's going to kill him shortly But he's not going to stay dead. It's not something that's going to lead to him remaining dead. Not something that, you know, three years later you're going to say, oh, poor Lazarus, you know, the plague got him that last, you know, Sunday in May or whatever. It's something different. But Jesus in his wisdom identifies the value of the veggies. What's the whole point of what follows? What's the whole point of the story? It's this. It's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, this whole chapter is framed so that we look at Jesus and marvel. So that we look at Him and wonder. To look at Him with those eyes that children have so spectacularly when you take them and they see new things and new machines and you see like a little kid around a big fire truck and just the like wonder like whoa those tires are bigger than i am yes it's amazing it's so that we as god's people might look to christ and be transformed as we see his tremendous glory And here, seen explicitly in his wisdom, one, that he's recognizing this is not an illness that leads to death. Now, that's fantastic, because our doctors today, at the height of human science, can't even make that statement. I mean, they hedge their bets, don't they? I mean, if you've spent any time in a hospital, you you can interact with the nurses, and they're like, well, yes, but... And they're constantly hedging, because they don't know. They can take good guesses, but they don't know. That's why it's called practicing medicine. Performing medicine. And I love how John transitions here in verse five and gives us more of the story. Jesus loves Martha, he loves her sister, loves Lazarus, so he stays put. Wait, what? He stays put. To make sure the issue is abundantly clear, to make sure that everyone involved begins to see explicitly and clearly what happens, he stays put. Now, those of you that, again, have been parents, particularly you older ones in the room, you know that wisdom that I'm talking about where you watch your child and you know they're going to fail. And you don't help them so that they do fail, so they do learn. See, that's what Jesus is doing here with his people. He could swoop in and save the day and they would never know the wiser. He could have, you know, found some sort of creature to ride. He could have had the angels carry him. He could have, you know, snapped his fingers, teleported himself all the way over to Lazarus and then just spoke. It. He could have stayed where he was and just said, be healed and it would have been fine. But then it doesn't have the fullness of the emotional punch. It doesn't have the fullness of the lesson taught. It doesn't have the fullness of the discipline designed for them. It's softening what needs to be hard. No in steady weights. Ensuring that Lazarus dies ensuring that Mary and Martha fully embrace their grief, ensuring that it gets as bad as it can before he moves. And then I I love the conversation that happens in seven and following with the disciples. Let's go to Judea again. Like, um, you know, they just tried to kill you there, right? Like we just had to run away because they were going to stone you and you snuck away. And then why are we going back? Help me out again. Why, why are we going back? <laughs> Verse nine, Jesus answered, why are they not 12 hours in a day? For them that was daylight That was 12 hours in a day One of the commentaries says This is basically Jesus' answer of saying A man's got to do what a man's got to do It's it's a non-answer Of course I know they're going to try to stone me It's not going to stop me I'm going to conquer death Do you think they can actually hurt me? No, of course not In his perfect wisdom He knows exactly what he's doing And he challenges them to that And then he explains it to them Again, God's perfect wisdom. And they don't get it. But you see, his wisdom is not just demonstrated in his ability to understand the circumstances, to know what God is doing, but rather he's actually displaying the plan of God to them. So first you're seeing Christ is the wisdom of God. To Christ is the plan of God. Look at what he says in verse 11. He, he after talking with the guys, saying, oh yeah, I've, I've got to go. He tells them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I'm going to wake him up. And they're like, well, um, if he's just sleeping, he'll be fine because he'll sleep it off. He may be a little groggy, but he'll be okay. Just leave him be. Jesus is like, um, no, you, no, he's not like sleep literally. He's like dead literally, and I'm going to wake him up from death. Like for me, sleep is kind of, you know, death is what sleep is to you. They miss the point entirely. And so he goes and explains to them the plan of God. Thirteen. he meant taking rest and sleep he says no Lazarus has died for your sake I'm glad that I was not there I'm glad I wasn't there when he died because I need to go now so that you'll actually believe and we poke fun at Thomas here and honestly we probably should it's a delightful sentence his little grumpy pouty sentence fine let us go that we all may die with him but even in the midst of his kind of poutiness, let's not neglect the fact that he is actually committed to go die with Christ. And that's probably further than I would find myself, to be honest. I would have been like, see ya. And that's what you call apostate. Not a good thing. Christ displays for them all the plan of God and and Thomas signs on a bit, you know, hesitantly and a bit grumpily, but still signs on for it. And then the story transforms and this is where it gets to be the most fun. Verse 17, he, he, Jesus moves on with his men. They travel to the right place. They head to Bethany, and everybody kind of finds out that they're coming. Mary, the more quiet, sedate one, sits and waits till Jesus gets there. Martha, and think of her very much kind of like Peter in this regard, personality wise. She's out there. Like she meets him before he can even get to the place. And she leads off with this both profound and grumpy sentence at the same time Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's profound in that she's recognizing that Christ has the power over illness. It's unbelievably grumpy in that it's discontent with him at the same time. And instead, Jesus instructs her now, not just in her faith, but understanding that he is the hope that God has provided for his people. That Christ is the hope of the saints, he says, like you don't need for me to be here for the story to end well your brother is going to rise again and she being the great Bible scholar says look I know I've read the Old Testament it's clear the Psalms are abundantly clear he's going to rise from the dead I'm not worried about that I'm worried about now I don't want to eat my veggies I don't want to do this I love Lazarus, and he's been taken from me. I don't want to face death now. I don't want to experience the loss of not having my family with me. I don't want to experience the aloneness. I don't want death. In verse 25, I love this is preserved for the saint's sense, but he drops a bomb on this lady by herself. Oh, by the way, I am, and remember that's the construction, the grammatical construction pointing to God Himself. He's saying, I am God and I am resurrection and I am life. <laughs> Boom. Her faith is it's rocked. I mean, you'd have to think about it. She's understood him to be lord over demons. She's understood him to be lord over sickness. She's already said that. No, now he's lord over something even bigger. I mean, the running gag of there's only two things in life that are sure, death and taxes. He's, he's conquering the really challenging one. At least he says he has. And then explains that not only is he this resurrection, is he this life, but that this is available for his people. It's contagious that he shares. Whoever believes in me, yet though he die, he'll live. I mean, he will have to face death. He's going to have to eat his veggies, but they're going to make him strong. He's going to have to face death. The saint of God, she will have to face death. But that's not the end. That's not where the story stops. It's not just we die and it's over. It's not that our lives are characterized by longing of the loneliness that follows death when we're friends and loved ones are taken from us. No, instead... Whoever believes in Christ, though he dies physically, he will live spiritually. And everyone who lives physically and believes in Christ spiritually shall never die. And then he pointedly asks her, do you believe this? And this precious woman... Yeah. Yeah, Lord, I do. And she doesn't just stop with saying she believes he's resurrection. He is resurrection. He is life. No, she continues further. I believe you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the very son of God. You are the one that has been promised since the garden. You are the solution to death And hell, you are the solution to sin. You are God's appointed messenger. You are very God himself. What a sentence. (laughs) And again, the transition, it cracks me up. When she had said this, she ran off to call her sister. No joke. I don't really know how that conversation progresses any further after that. She goes and finds Mary and says, Jesus is here. He's calling. You need to go listen. So Mary hops up and quickly goes running out. And the Jews see her now. This is, I guess, maybe a cultural note that would be important. Most of us come from more Western kinds of cultures. And in Western kinds of cultures, Spurgeon has a great line, there's kind of two types of sorrows. There are small sorrows which are very loud and great sorrows which are silent. <laughs> and for Western cultures, that's very much the case where the things that are little minor annoyances, those are the things that we'll complain about all the time. Smash your big toe and see how many people you tell about it. <laughs> Watch someone lose a spouse and see how rarely they talk about it. See, that, that, that's the kind of culture that we come from, where our most grievous losses are the ones where we insulate the most privately. That's not the culture of this day. In fact, some of us have either lived or interacted with cultures of this kind where uh, mourning is done very publicly. And that would be the case here when it was time to grieve. You didn't just grieve quietly in your own room, in your own closet. You didn't have that like one tear that was like, okay, I'm done. I made it. I I got the one out. I'm fine. It was done publicly in, in the square. You fell apart. You tore clothes. You rubbed dirt on you. It was demonstrative. It was sometimes quite uncontrolled and it was contagious so that if one was mourning others would join in it was a community activity and so as mary and martha are mourning in their home there are other jews that have come to mourn with them and not the way we think of that where it's like oh, let me sit with you and hold your hand and tell you i love you it'll be okay that's mourning with somebody, of our standards right i brought a casserole can i sit with you for an hour which is good i mean we should And this, no, that's not it here. This is like, can I weep with you? Can I wail with you? Can I experience your loss with you? Can I suffer with you? And so she gets up and goes running out to the tomb and they think, oh, she's going to the tomb. She's going to the tomb. We're going to go with her because when she falls apart at the tomb, we're going to fall apart with her. I'll cry and fall out and wail. And instead, she heads for Jesus. And you have uh, in this next moment all of the compassion of God captured in one man. She comes running out to him and says, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And 33 through 37 are some of the most moving verses in Scripture where Jesus, he sees her weeping. And again, understand the situation. He's walking up. He's got his disciples with him. It had to have been a really uncomfortable journey because they think they're all going to be martyred with him. Not exactly a lot of chipper conversation on that trip. They think they're all about to be stoned, a terrible way to die. And then when they get there, all they greet are women who are falling apart on them. Not your ideal reception. The first one comes out. She falls apart on Jesus. He says something and she's Wah, and she goes running off. And now the next one comes out and she's falling apart and weeping and wailing. And she's got other people weeping and wailing with her. And you see verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was greatly troubled. And friends, here we see this compassion of God. He, is this not Jesus the robot? Unfortunately and wrongly so, many of us have pictured Christ to be some sort of kind of divine Spock. Right? Unyielding, emotionless, nothing rattles me, nothing. No, here he, he, he's confronted with a group of crying women and what does he do? He cries with them. Moved out of compassion and empathy and sympathy and tenderness, he sees them, he sees their sorrow, he sees all of the consequences of death right there, written large in front of them, and he joins them in their sorrow. He's so moved. Verse 34, he says, Where have you laid him? And they just say, Come, come and see. He gets to the tomb and he weeps. I suspect, obviously doesn't tell us. I suspect this is not that stoic crying that you see where the man stands there rigid, shoulders back, head erect, and the one kind of majestic tear falls down, and it's like a scene from a no. This is probably like you got to blow your nose afterwards because you kind of got things moving, kind of cry. And to think about, even as he's doing this, he's he's joining the women in their sorrow, knowing that he's about to fix it all. But he's so compassionate, he knows he's going to fix their sorrow, but he doesn't ignore it. And you think about that, for when you suffer now, when you hurt now, when you're sad now, he's going to fix it, but he still feels sorrow with you. I also like to think about, he's, he's probably also at some point to here mourning for Lazarus. Lazarus has been in glory for four days and is about to have the singular worst day of his life. <laughs> and then you get to the end. God's power displayed in his son, Christ Jesus. As Jesus, deeply moved again, goes in front of the tomb and you have this beautiful interchange, take the stone away. And she's like, you really don't want to do that. Well, you really don't want to do that. My cousins grew up on a, actually the South Carolina, state of South Carolina f- fishery department, the uh, agricultural department. Uh, my uncle ran one of the fisheries here where they would Uh, breed fish to restock the lakes and the rivers and everything and they bred alligators and all kinds of stuff and it was not an uncommon thing when we were kids and going out and playing out on there to find something that had died and been dead for quite a lengthy period of time and being a young male that was unbelievably cool but the thing was is you could locate it from a long way away Because the rank stench, you know, a deer that a gator had eaten half of or something, or a dead gator or something like that, smelled terrible. And then you could track it down as to where it was. The the, the stench would have been unbearable in this situation. Hot climate in the tomb, taking the stone away. And they crack open the tomb, and Jesus gives, I, I love this prayer. Father thank you for hearing me. I know you always do. I'm praying this not for your benefit nor for my benefit, but for everybody else listening. I'm praying it so that these people will have their faith, faith increased. Okay, now let's raise him from the dead. And then it's, come out! And he does. And you have this great kind of mummy moment of the guy wrapped in grave clothes, kind of shuffling out because his feet would be wrapped, his legs would be wrapped, shuffling out of the tomb. And just, you'd have to think, absolute bewilderment following. Following. absolute bewilderment (laughs) he just conquered death in all of human history our experience is when people die they tend to stay dead not in his case he has command over death this one in just this simple story we see is the wisdom of God he is the plan of God he is the hope of God he is the compassion of God he is the power of God and the whole reason is because he is God That's interesting and spoiling the sermon next week a little bit. What's the response? Well, the Jews immediately see this and are like we are going to kill this guy. In fact, actually, we're not only going to kill this guy, we're going to kill Lazarus too, which is just the most hysterical thing. The only thing wrong he had done was to be raised from the dead. And they're like we can't handle him. He's proof of Jesus. Doesn't matter if he's already died once. We're going to make it happen a second time and they try to kill Lazarus and this is what they determined to kill Jesus for. Because Jesus has actually already tipped his hand in the middle of the story. What is the middle of the story? What is the point of the story? What do we do? Well, verse 26, when he asks Martha, do you believe this? And not in some sort of kind of intellectual, well, I mean, it could have happened. But in a life-altering, life-consuming soul shaping belief you see the reality is many of us having lived in the south for an extended period of time we've been exposed to this abomination called cultural Christianity and I would happily use that word abomination the idea that I, I can be a Christian because I'm a republican or I can be a Christian because I am from the south or I can be a Christian because I grew up in this certain neighborhood and that's absolutely wrong the whole point of the scriptures is pointing to what do we do with that question? Do you believe it? Not do you make enough money to wear the right type of clothes? Do you look nice or are you one of those people? That Do you believe in Christ? Why? Well, because he is the answer to all of our problems. He is the answer to death. He is God. Now, if you don't know him, you need to find an answer to that question. I'll help you. Come talk to me. It may be actually more likely here that as you sit and listen, you think, well, I, I, I know the answer to that question. But maybe I've lost a little bit of that sense of wonder. And maybe that'd be a good thing for you to pray about this afternoon. Or maybe... We find ourselves struggling to believe, which is probably more likely the case. And the good news is, is that in this world that Christ operates, none of these people are perfect, save for him. And he comes to us in our weakness, in our neediness, and strengthens us. And so might we even ask that he help us in our unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Christ and we do ask that you would help us help us in our unbelief forgive us for our lack of faith forgive us for our half-hearted commitments forgive us for Christ's sake we pray in Jesus name amen